Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming. I'm Steve Cheney, the CEO of the American Security Project, and welcome to what is our new conference room. Uh, for those who were with us in the past, we used to be up on New York Avenue. We decided that in order to influence policy a little better, we had to be much closer to the Trump Hotel. So we moved down here, which is not really the story, but I like, that's what I like to say. It's an interesting building. On top of us is the Hudson Institute. They had uh, Vice President Pence there two weeks ago talking about China. So there's a lot of traffic in and out of this building. But I'm very glad you're here. These are busy days in Washington, and some would say, what do you care about Guyana? And energy security has long been a topic for our organization, and we're concerned with energy security, energy production, who controls it, where the funds are going, uh, and how it influences policy, certainly in this hemisphere. And, of course, the find in Guyana is spectacular. It's great for that country. Uh, we hope it's handled appropriately. And we certainly have a vested interest in this. And we've got a great panel assembled here today to talk about this specific issue. So I'm pleased you're here. Please hit our website. We will live stream this. We'll put it up on our website. It's all on the record. Uh, and you'll see everything there. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our Chief Operating Officer, Andrew Holland. General Cheney, thank you. Uh, I'm Andrew Holland, COO of ASP. I'll be moderating today's event, and I'm also the, the author of the report that you have on, on the table there, uh, Guiana, Building Sustainable Security. Uh, welcome also to those of you following on, on Facebook, or if, if you want to tweet anything on Twitter, uh, we're at hashtag ASP Energy. Uh, so what we're going to be talking about today uh, is how, really in the next decade, Guiana, small country in the Caribbean and uh, and on the Atlantic coast of South America, will become one of the, the world's largest producers of oil per capita. Uh, I'll be talking about the geopolitical challenges and opportunities the country face, and our other speakers will, will uh, talk about other issues as well. Um, I'm going to introduce each of our speakers here first, and then we'll, we'll each speak for about 10 minutes, uh, and then we can have an open discussion, and we'll have, have a moderated discussion and, and open it out to you all in, in the audience. Uh, first to, to speak today will be Sonia Boudou. Uh, she's a senior analyst at Reistad Energy, focusing on upstream activity. Her experience in the oil and gas sector includes fiscal regi regime modeling, petroleum economics, and exploration geology for uh, energy and power companies and, and consulting companies based in the United Kingdom, Norway, and Trinidad, uh, where she originally c comes from. Uh, she will show us Rystad's estimates on how much oil is re recoverable in Guyana, how much revenue that will mean for the, the government and people there. Uh, and she traveled here from London, so we're happy to have her here. Uh, thanks, Sonia. Uh, next will be Vice Admiral Kevin Green. Uh, he's a member of, uh, a new member of American Security Project's Consensus for American Security, our, our quasi-advisory board that, that uh, keeps us on the straight and narrow when we're talking about national security issues. Um, he served more than 30 years as a naval officer, completing his Navy career as Deputy Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, as DCNO, he coordinated global naval operations, strategic planning, information operations, and policy development. Uh, as a flag officer, he commanded naval forces, uh, U.S. Southern Command, which includes Guyana and, and the region. Uh, after leaving the Navy, he led IBM's Department of Defense and in Intelligence Community Businesses. Uh, Admiral Green currently consults with the Defense Science Board, the National Academy of Sciences, and on behalf of defense industry clients. Uh, Admiral Green will be talking about the, the security and, and geopolitical issues. Uh, finally, Lisa Viskiti uh, is Director of the Energy, Climate Change, and Extractive Industries Program at the Inter-American Dialogue. She's a specialist in Latin American energy issues, focusing on policy and regulations, oil and gas markets, sustainable transport, and the social and environmental impacts of natural resources development. She will give us a perspective on how other countries in the region have dealt with the challenges that Guyana will face. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sonia, and she'll tell us about where the oil is and how much there is. Thank you, Sonia. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, today, I'll present my company's view on the ENP activity in Guyana. So, Reistad Energy is an independent energy consulting and business intelligence data firm. We're headquartered in Oslo and provide consulting services as well as databases for clients in the energy industry. 
we have offices around the world, as you can see. So today, we'll talk a little bit about Guyana, particularly the ENP activity there, in terms of the resources discovered so far, the production that could come from these resources, as well as the economics behind those projects. And finally, we'll look at the fiscal regime and compare it with some other offshore regions. Okay. So firstly, we'll look at a map of Guyana showing the licensed acreage offshore. And what we see is that there are seven quite large licenses offshore Guyana with one license holding all of the discoveries to date. There have been nine discoveries to date in the Starbrook block, and that block is owned by Exxon in partnership with Hess and Cenoc. We also see that Exxon has interest in blocks to the east of the Starbrook block, the Kaita block, as well as the Kanji block. And they have partners there as Hess and Ratio Oil in the Kaita block, and Total, GHI, and Mid-Atlantic Oil and Gas in the Kanji block. To the south of the Starbrook block, we have block Kanuku, where Repsol operates in partnership with Total and Tolo. And we have also CGX um, active in the region with two blocks, 100% owned, the Quarantine block to the south, as well as the Demerara block to the west. In addition, Tolo is operating the Orenduk block with Total and Eco-Atlantic Oil and Gas as its partners there. So the um, bubbles on the map represent the discoveries that have made, been made thus far, and we'll talk about those in a bit more detail later on. Okay, so those discoveries have put Guyana in the limelight in terms of offshore discoveries in the last decade. This slide here shows the global offshore discoveries since 2010, and what you see in represented by the colors, uh, whether it's oil or gas. So the green represents oil discoveries, whereas the red represents gas discoveries. And what we see from this chart is that Guyana comes in with the ninth largest volumes of hydrocarbons discovered since 2010. Um, what's notable here is that the, the countries that are outranking Guyana here are some countries that are quite veterans in the offshore space. These include uh, countries like Brazil and Norway, for instance. In total, the offshore discoveries that we've seen in Ghana amounts to around 4 billion barrels of oil equivalent. This year only, if we look at the discoveries that have been made offshore, we see that Guyana has had the highest discovered volumes for 2018 of any country in the world. On this slide, we take a bit of a more in-depth look at each of this, these discoveries. And what we have here is the estimated recoverable oil resources in Ghana by each discovery. So we see that the first discoveries were made in 2015, and we had the Lisa 1 and 2 wells drilled in 2015 with a total of 1.4 billion barrels of oil estimated to be recoverable from those discoveries. In 2017, we had three discoveries, Payara, Snook, and Turbot. Payara, we estimate 437 million barrels to be recoverable. Snook, around 389 million barrels. And Turbot, 102 million barrels. This year, we've seen four discoveries so far, with Ranger estimated at 346 million barrels recoverable, Pokora, 297 barrels, million barrels recoverable, and Longtail, 338 million barrels recoverable. Most recently, we had the Hammerhead discovery being announced, I think that was in late August, and we estimate that discovery to have 262 million barrels recoverable. In total, we see about 3.6 billion barrels of oil recoverable in Guyana from these discoveries. Um, what's notable also is that since 2015, Exxon have drilled 11 exploration wells, and nine of these 11 wells have resulted in discoveries. This is quite a high success rate as generally for the offshore regions, the success rate is around 35%, and for frontier regions like Guyana, specifically, it's around 20%. So the success rate in Guyana has been astounding thus far. Okay, so with all of these discoveries, we do accept, expect to see quite a few projects being sanctioned um, for development by 2025. The first one is LISA Phase 1, which has been approved for development last year, and we expect to see a startup of production in 2020 from this field. The price at which 
the oil price at which uh, Lisa phase one will be economic is $34 per barrel. Dollars per barrel. Lisa phase two is expected to be sanctioned in 2019 and hopefully should start up around 2023. We see phase three developing the Payara and Pokora fields together. That project should be sanctioned in 2019 and will start up in 2024. Those three projects will be developed by FPSOs. The first phase of um, LISA would be developed with an FPSO of around 120,000 barrels of oil per day capacity. This LISA phase two FPSO will have a higher capacity at 220,000 barrels per day, and phase three, 180,000 barrels per day. Phase four should uh, include the long tail and turbot discoveries, and we estimate that this should be approved around 2021 with a startup potentially in 2026. We also expect to see future phases of development around the 2025 timeframe, which would include the remaining discoveries such as Snook and Ranger. And I should just reiterate here that these are all Reistad Energy estimates, so subject to change. Okay, so with all the um, positive outcomes of exploration activity in Guyana, we do see communication from operators about planned exploration in this year and next year. So currently, ExxonMobil is gearing up to spud the Pluma prospect, which is 17 miles from its recent turbot discovery. Next year, in the third quarter, Tolo would spud the Urunduik prospect. And finally, in the November 2019, CGX will spud its well on the quarantine block. In addition, there's been a lot of communication around further prospectivity in Guyana. So in the Starbrook block, for instance, there's been communication around 18 more potential prospects to be drilled. There's also been communication around the Urunduik block, which is expected to have another 2.9 billion barrels of potential across 10 leads there. So this kind of reflects the immaturity of the basin, yet showing that there's still quite a lot of potential left there. Okay, so if... All of these discoveries do get sanctioned and begin production. We expect that the production in Guyana could exceed 800,000 barrels of oil per day in the 2030s. And this slide shows what each of the um, discoveries, how they would contribute to the production in Guyana. So as you can see, it's split by field, and you can see how much is contributed by LISA, LISA Phase II, Payara, Snook, etc or leading to a peak production in 2030, 20, early 2030s. So moving on now to talk a little bit about the fiscal regime in Guyana. So the upstream activity there is governed by production sharing contracts. And there are two main elements of the production sharing contracts in Guyana. We have the royalty, which is 2% of your gross revenue. And then you have profit oil, which is split 50-50 between the ENP companies and the government. In the calculation of profit oil, certain allowances are used. The first one is depreciation of capital expenditure on a five-year straight-line basis. In addition, there's a cost recovery ceiling, which is 75% of your gross revenue. And the cost recovery ceiling limits the amount that can be deducted in calculating the profit oil. So the chart on the right shows your cost oil profile for LISA phase one. And what we see in the green line is your cost ceiling. So that effectively is your 75% of your revenue. The black line shows your deductible cost, which includes your depreciated capex. And the purple line shows the difference between the two. And that is the amount that you can use in your cost oil calculation. So moving on, the profit oil is basically your revenue minus your royalty, minus your operating cost, minus your cost oil as calculated above. And then this is split 50-50 between the ENP companies and the government. So in total, what the government takes is your royalty plus your government profit oil. Okay, and this is used, the government take is used together with other um, costs as well as your revenues to generate your cash flow profile. And what we see here is the cash flow profile for all of the projects that we've talked about before. If they are sanctioned and get into production, this is what the 
profile would look like. And what we can see here is the colors represents different items that add up to your total revenue. So your green at the bottom is your free cash flow, which is what goes to the companies. The browns is your government take, which is your royalty and profit oil. So that's what goes to the government. Then the olive and yellow is your capital costs, capital expenditure. And the reds and pinks are your operating costs. So the sum of all of these would be your revenue. And what we can see is that in the early 2030s, revenue can reach as much as $25 billion from all of these projects. If we take a look at only profit, which basically excludes the, this portion, and you see just the free cash flow and the government take, the profit will reach around 18 billion US dollars in the 2030s. So when we aggregate the entire government take over the lifetime of all these fields, we can see what the government of Ghana is expected to take from all of these projects. So again, if all of them are sanctioned and come into production, we can see that at $50 a barrel oil price, the government of Ghana could potentially take $57 billion from all of these projects. At $70 per barrel, the government of Ghana can potentially receive $111 billion US dollars. And at $90 per barrel, potentially $172 billion. This is quite significant, especially considering the fact that Ghana is such a small country with a quite low population of under 800,000. So quite significant revenues to be had to the government there. So there's been a lot of debate regarding the fiscal regime in Ghana, whether it is fair. And what we've done is decided to um, analyze the fiscal regime compared to some other countries to see how it stacks up. And what we've done is taken the average government take metric and compared it over the different offshore regions. So what the average government take is, is the net present value of your government's take divided by the net present value of the profits of the field. And this metric for Ghana comes in at 59%. If you look at it in the grand scheme of things, this looks quite low as compared to, say, Trinidad, which is its neighbor. However, we do know that Guyana is a frontier region, and we need to compare the fiscal regime of frontier regions with other regions of similar maturity in order to gauge whether it stacks up. And the darker lines here represent other frontier regions. So we can see Mauritania, Mozambique, Israel, and Falkland Islands are some of the other frontier regions. And Guyana falls well within average for government take for frontier regions. So even though it seems low compared to some of the other offshore regions, it's comparable to other frontier regions in terms of government take. And why do the frontier regions need to have lower uh, government take? It's because the governments of these uh, frontier regions need to use the fiscal regime to attract investment in these more high-risk areas. And um, Guyana did a pretty good... Uh, good uh, fiscal regime in terms of attracting Exxon and its partners at a time when there had been no discoveries in Ghana and it was considered quite high risk. So it was quite successful in terms of attracting investment and getting all of these discoveries going. And then finally, to summarize, we've seen that expiration success rates in Ghana are well above average. We do have a positive outlook for ENP activity in Guyana with production exceeding 800,000 barrels per day by 2030. We do see strong demand for oil field services, particularly with all these FPSO developments we envisage. And significant wealth is expected to be generated from these EMP projects to the government of Guyana. And it can reach, it can reach in the region of 100 billion US dollars at a $70 per barrel oil price. With regard to the fiscal regime, the average government take for Guyana is 59%. And although um, this is not, it's quite favorable in comparison to other offshore regions, it is comparable to other frontier regions because of the necessity of having good fiscal terms in order to attract investment in these high-risk frontier regions. And that's all I have today. Thanks. Sonia, thank you. And, and I think a, a really... Astonishing story when, when you look at this, uh, $100 billion for 
any government is, is a large uh, windfall. And for a, a, a country of the size of Guyana, I think it's, it's quite astonishing. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the geopolitical challenges and, and of the region. And, and um, you know, I think it, there's something notable when, when I was listening to Sonia's presentation. Uh, nine of the 11 um, wells, that, exploration wells that have been um, drilled came back positive. And, and I think that that's, that's a notable thing, that, that it hasn't been, to, it, it was only just recently that, that it was actually explored. And, and part of the reason for that is, is geopolitical, I think. And I'm going to demonstrate that, that maybe Guyana's neighbors haven't always been um, open to them developing this oil and, and developing as a country. Um, but you know what they say uh, about when $100 billion, uh, kind of in the, in the immortal words of Puff Daddy, more money, more problems. <laughs> um, you know, a resource boom has not always been beneficial to small, poor countries. And, and as I write in the, in the paper, resource curse can result in failed governments, macroeconomic stagnation, and endemic corruption. And, and I think actually the, the neighbor... Uh, to their west, Venezuela, uh, unfortunately, shows the, the worst examples of the resource curse right now. Um, but as of now, uh, I think we have reason to be optimistic here. Uh, Guyana appears to be taking the right steps to avoid the curse, and, and Lisa will go into some of the lessons further here. Um, but what I, I'd like to talk about kind of on the geopolitics the islands of the Caribbean and, and all the states around the sea's border have always been too small, really, to control their own geopolitical destinies. Um, their problem is dependence. Uh, hundreds of years ago, it was dependence on slaves, uh, imported food, now dependence on global markets, uh, and dependence on imported energy. Um, for the last two decades, really, Venezuela's Petrocarib initiative met the, the needs of these Caribbean countries right where they were most vulnerable, most dependent, and that's energy security. Guyana joined uh, Petrocarib in, in 2009, uh, trading rice to, to Venezuela at inflated prices in exchange for subsidized oil, uh, creating a relationship based upon dependence. And I think uh, in my research and writing about Petrocarib over the years, I think that that's very clearly on purpose. They wanted to create a relationship based on dependence. Um, and Venezuela expected dependent countries to follow those, their directives. Uh, and notab notably, I think, Venezuela wouldn't allow countries to grow away from that dependence. If I could show uh, here. Uh, in tw 2013, the Venezuelan Navy boarded and, and detained uh, the crew of a vessel exploring in Guiana's waters for oil. Then, uh, in 2015... Almost immediately after Exxon announced uh, their major oil find, uh, Venezuela dumped Guiana from Petrocarib, replacing its rice with a contract for rice from neighboring Suriname. And at the same time, both Suriname and Venezuela uh, revived long dormant claims to Guyanese territory. And the, uh, the Venezuelan cl claim is particularly expansive. You can see it's the entire red area, two-thirds of the country, basically, uh, out to the Esquibo River, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, and it would, if it was uh, allowed to go through, it would reduce the size of Guiana by 53,000 square miles, about two-thirds. Uh, but this doesn't stop with territory on land either. Uh, Venezuela's claim to uh, Guyana's territory in, in the maritime space is uh, particularly expansive as well. Uh, and you can see this, this superimposed over what we just talked about, the Stabrook block, where, where oil was found. Uh, and this is a few years old, but, it, could, but it, it basically shows they would take a, a, good, a good bit there. Um, now, the border dispute extends far back into colonial times, and it's a long story. I won't go into it here. Uh, if you read about it, the U.S. gets involved in Monroe Doctrine and all this sort of stuff. Um, but knowing this, and, and what I want to point out on, on this, this slide here, is that the Stabrook block was specifically made 
when it was designed in 1999 to establish the maritime borders, extending from one side of the uh, exclusive economic zone to the other side of Guyana's exclusive economic zone. So, so you have it, it's kind of unique among offshore blocks. They're usually just kind of big rectangles. Uh, but to, to, to go from one, one side to the other, it established Guyana's claim. But then, to show this, this is actually from the, uh, the National Organization for Maritime Rescue and Safety of Venezuela, which is kind of a quasi-governmental organization. And it, immediately after the ExxonMobil uh, claim in 2015, uh, Maduro uh, went even further than that, that claim I showed before. Uh, and they created an official decree creating what they call a strategic maritime and insular integral defense region, uh, extending uh, from Guyanese territory claimed by Venezuela far into the Atlantic, and this far exceeds any previous claim by Venezuela. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really astonishing here. You can see the, the map that they put in. Again, this isn't best quality because it was made by, by the Venezuelan uh, <laughs> quasi-governmental organization. But you can see their, their ship there, that's, that's where the, the uh, original Exxon oil find was, the Liza One uh, discovery. And you can see that they're, they're specifically claiming that. And you can see the purple area is what they would leave uh, Guyana with in their exclusive economic zone. Uh, quite small. Uh, it's um, it, it's expansive, and you can see the, the onshore uh, area as well uh, is in yellow there. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's frustrating to see a, a neighbor uh, making these claims, and I think you can make a coherent case that these claims over the long term, and they, they were revived every so often. Uh, honestly, I think they, they've been revived when the Venezuelan government is looking for something to distract their own population beyond their borders. Uh, it, they're looking for some a distraction from, from the problems that they, they have. But um, it, it really does, I think it has there's de demonstrated that it's reduced the economic development of Guiana over the years. And, uh, and it's unfortunately. Uh, over the last year, there's been increasingly heated rhetoric by Venezuela over the land border. Uh, Guyana set up two military bases along the border, but kind of in a telling state of where Venezuela is right now. Uh, instead of fighting an armed invasion, these bases have mostly found Venezuelans, including members of the military, trying to trade for food or medical attention. Um, but even, even so, even, because, even though it, it doesn't appear that the Venezuelan military is, is able or willing to, to take on uh, these, these um, expansive claims, um, the Brazilian defense minister, when he was visiting uh, Georgetown in February of this year, felt the need to pledge uh, military to support to defend Guiana in case Venezuela attempted to invade. Uh, I think this is a, something in which the United States has a clear interest and, and uh, as, a, as a longtime champion of um, secure borders and of um, the, the rule of law in international affairs. This is something that we should be aware of and, uh, and following closely. Uh, January of 2019, the dispute was, uh, 2018, the dispute was referred to the UN Secretary General to the, to the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Um, government of Venezuela has so far refused to take part in the process, but uh, the government of Guyana is attempting to find a judgment by the court to finally end, end the dispute. What I'd say, though, about all this is that the remarkable thing is that Guyana is overcoming these geopolitical challenges to, the, to its very territorial integrity. Uh, and uh, I think, as I write in the report, that the newfound energy security could, uh, if managed correctly, allow it to go and grow into a model for the region, for the Caribbean, for South America, uh, and with good policy and, and a little bit of luck, uh, it'll be able to stand on its own as an equal to choose its own path in global affairs uh, without regard to where its imports of energy uh, come from. With that, I'm going to turn it over to, to Admiral Green and, and let him uh, talk about what his experience in the U.S. Navy uh, and uh, his, 
would have to say about this and, and his, his take on it. Admiral Green, thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Andrew. I'm delighted to be here. Let me begin with a disclaimer. None of the remarks I'm about to make have been cleared with the United States government, not the State Department, not U.S. Southern Command, not the Department of Defense, and by none of the companies with whom I work uh, these days. But I'll make the remarks anyway. Uh, so I would like to first set the context for security in, in the Caribbean region. Uh, the, the principal objective of United States military forces in this region are simple, stable progress. This is an area where we have a lot of shared interests with, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the nations in the, in the area. We have a long history in Latin America and the Caribbean, Central America and South America to be sure. Um, I think it, it really bears consideration of the, the uh, participation, the activities, the operations, the collaboration, coordination, the, the military diplomacy, if you will, throughout the region over the last three decades in particular. Stable progress, that's really been the, the primary objective. Uh, and if you were to speak with a senior military, a U.S. senior military leader about this region, they would probably come up with about uh, five or six different challenges or major issues. One of them is a great power competition. China and Russia are on the rise around the world, not just in their own immediate regions, not just in the South China Sea, not just in the, in the Crimea and, and parts of Ukraine, but all over the world. And what are their interests? Their interests are to advance their own national interests through uh, exploitation of instability, exploitation of, uh, of uh, corruption, exploitation of frayed societies, exploitation of economic difficulties, exploitation of things like migration as well. They're not doing this for the benefit of our neighbors in our hemisphere. They're doing this for their, for their own national reason, re, reasons, and that is an issue and a, uh, a, a challenge that has diplomatic implications, economic implications, and to be sure, military implications as well. Terrorist activity in this region is of considerable concern. Hezbollah is active in the Caribbean and in South America in terms of fundraising on behalf of other entities that uh, have uh, adverse implications for global security, not just regional security, and obviously their great interests of the United States engaged. They've been involved in recruiting in the region and uh, in the, the immediate area of uh, the southern part of the, of the Caribbean. And in fact, uh, as press accounts and uh, other reports have indicated, there have been terrorist attacks as well. The United States military has not been inactive in responding to those kinds of, uh, of threats and challenges. One of the primary responsibilities to, for U.S. Southern Command is the defense of the Panama Canal. For the last several years, Major exercises, including as many as 16 regional nations, have been involved in dealing with uh, uh, preparing for uh, uh, any kind of operations that would threaten the free use of the canal. The secondary effects of the, of the uh, refugee crisis uh, are considerable. If you look at a, a country like Colombia, where the, the agreement with the FARC over the past uh, couple of years has engaged the Colombian government in, in finding ways of dealing with that. The refugee crisis complicates that, makes it more difficult, and puts additional strains on the resources of, of that country. Uh, other secondary effects are being felt in other nations in the region as well, and Guyana has is, is, uh, not been uh, immune from the effects of, of that crisis. Trafficking, obviously, narcotics. Human beings, whether they are migrants or they are uh, captives, uh, commercial products as well, I illegal, illicit, uh, unmonitored, unsecured trafficking is, is a, a matter of great uh, interest, issue, and concern to the United States and to our partner nations in the region. So with those kinds of challenges, and I'm sure there are, there are more we could, uh, we could talk about, 
The question is, what is the principal role of the U.S. military in the region? Uh, when, we, when we start wondering what would happen if, if certain contingencies took place, how does the U.S. military engage itself in those situations? Um, I would first start with a, with a comment that the, the purpose and the role and the objective and the, uh, the, uh, the, the culture of the U.S. military globally, but in, in particular in this region, uh, is non-belligerence. We work in collaboration and coordination with, with our partner nations. Um, maritime security is a major one. Obviously, I, I had a lot of personal uh, engagement in that area, whether it has to do with, uh, with uh, reducing, uh, interdicting, uh, illicit trafficking of materials or, uh, or individuals. Counter-piracy, which is an issue that, which is growing in, uh, in level of activity particularly in the Southern Caribbean, uh, and, and other issues as well, providing uh, intelligence and sharing intelligence on movement of, uh, of questionable traffic uh, to, to partner nations as well. Humanitarian and disaster relief. The uh, U.S. Naval ship Comfort, a big hospital ship, is in the Caribbean today. It's going to be uh, working with Colombia, with Honduras, with Peru and Ecuador, uh, largely sent down there to help out with, uh, with the challenges that have been brought about by the migration uh, crisis. Training and professionalism with, with partner nations has been a big part of the U.S. military's engagement in this region for many, many decades. Uh, professionalism of, uh, of uh, officers, uh, senior enlisted, and so forth, uh, the supervisors, uh, training uh, in functional uh, areas, not just combat-type operations, but, but military engineering, logistics, uh, management of, of resources, and so forth, and providing operational and material support. When we talk about operational support, we're really talking about everything from providing logistics to providing backup to providing surveillance and intelligence resources, information sharing, and so forth, and a material support. I think... Uh, you'd be uh, quite impressed, if not amazed, at the, at the level of, of support that the U.S. military, particularly the United States Army, has provided in terms of working with, with nations in this region and digging wells or, or providing uh, improvements to sanitation conditions in areas where they've been engaged. Uh, but, but the real key is to provide the, the tremendous capacity and capability of U.S. military forces as directed by the uh, national command authority, of course, to be able to assist when situations get out of hand in order to deter uh, acts of violence. Uh, and I have to say, when, when asked recently about what, what would happen if Nation A decided to uh, go across the border and uh, take over property or territory of another nation, well, in my view, that's one way to turn a nation that's in the course of a disaster into one that's in a course of catastrophe. Uh, we will not be standing by. Uh, as Andrew mentioned, uh, Brazil has made a very serious and legitimate commitment uh, to help in the event of, uh, of outside encroachment. Um, in, in order for a nation that has uh, been fortunate enough to find additional source of, uh, of resources to help in its development, uh, nations, responsible nations in the region are not simply going to stand by and allow uh, untoward acts of, uh, of international terrorism to, uh, to stand. Uh, and I think I'll leave it at that and look forward to questions. Thank you, Admiral. Uh, over to you, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. It's great to join this panel. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit... Um, I want to talk a little bit about what I see as kind of the economic uh, and the sort of development challenges of building an oil industry basically from scratch in Guyana. And I'll also talk at the end just a little bit about the, the geopolitical issues as well. Um, so, I mean, I think there are a couple of challenges that Guyana is going to face, and I think in some cases there's also support that the U.S. could provide. Um, the first one, which has, I think, gotten the most attention 
um, both in the local press and among the international community is the question of revenue management and how do you deal with the boom and bust cycles that are um, a part of, of having the oil industry because of the fluctuation in oil prices. Um, so we've seen that the, the most oil dependent countries in the world have huge fluctuations in their terms of trade that are very much in line with uh, oil price fluctuations. So countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela are very vulnerable to this. If you look at the more diversified countries that are also large oil producers like the US or Mexico, um, you see a much more stable terms of trade. Um, and there's also, of course, big fluctuations in government revenue. So you know, Sonia talked about how much government revenue, and as you saw, it really depends on where the price of oil is. Um, and nobody knows where that's going to go. So a lot of countries have um, sovereign wealth funds and uh, fiscal rules that can help kind of smooth out expenditures. And Guyana right now is discussing, in, in Congress they're debating uh, setting up a sovereign wealth fund. Um, and that would help. And um, however, it's, it hasn't been approved, but it's expected by the end of this year. And they've also proposed, um, they're also, the government is planning what they call the Guyana Sustainable Development Strategy. And it's really about kind of diversifying the economy, um, even if they're in a more oil-dependent economy, also investing in um, green technologies and, and other aspects, and that can help to diversify. Um, and if we look at other examples, for example, Norway that has a huge sovereign wealth fund um, that they use as their pension fund uh, has been, is very stable and it continues to grow even when oil prices were down. Um, Chile in the, in the region has a fiscal rule which um, really limits how much their budget deficit can be. And they've been hugely successful in managing their copper revenues despite um, the last couple years that copper prices went way down. The second challenge that I see is in um, local content requirements and kind of the idea that you want to build up more of a local industry. So just the, the, the oil industry in itself is not going to produce that many jobs. Um, I've seen some estimates in, in press reports that uh, there are only about 600 jobs now and might go up to 1,000. I don't know exactly how you know, precise those estimates are, but one of the things the government's trying to do is build out more of the local industry. Um, and I think that um, you can have specific local content requirements, but you also have to be very careful that you don't have requirements that the local industry can't meet. And I think if we look at other experiences, uh, one that stands out is in Brazil, where they had very strict local content requirements but the local industry wasn't prepared. And especially with offshore, you're talking about um, very complex and very expensive uh, floating production platforms where the best ones and most, at most competitive price are built in Asia. It's not easy to just start that as a local industry. And I think you have to, I would, you know, you have to be very cautious about how you develop that strategy. Uh, there's also been some discussion in Guyana about building a refinery. And I also think that um, it would seem to make sense, the idea that you would add value to the crude oil. But in fact, refining is a very low profit business, and it, it requires huge upfront investment. And it's very uh, susceptible to corruption. It's very easy to um, have corruption schemes. And again, I would point to the example in Brazil, where uh, once they discovered the pre-salt, they had these massive plans for building new refining capacity. And um, ultimately, a lot of the projects were canceled or delayed. And um, the whole Lava Jato, which is a massive corruption scandal, was actually unraveled when they saw that there was corruption on a huge scale at a refinery um, in northeast Brazil. So I think also um, related to this is the, the, the broader question of what will be the role of the state? And is there a risk of political intervention? And so. Um, in many countries in Latin America, you have uh, resource nationalism where the governments try to impose um, a bigger role. And a lot of the countries have national oil companies. And that's something that maybe down the line, uh, Guyana will start to debate because it, it, it is a, a common approach. And already they have production sharing agreements, which has a little bit more of a role for the government um, directly than you have with concession agreements like in the US. But I think. National oil companies have a very poor track record in, in, in productivity and environmental management. And I think you have to be cautious about that. Um, and I also think you need to look at what are the expectations of citizens in terms of how they're going to benefit. 
Um, and so I think on, on the positive side, you have things like Guyana is a country with uh, many people who don't have access to electricity or who have very unreliable access to electricity. And because of the discovery, there's now the possibility um, there's, they're going to build a natural gas plant that will allow electricity for many more people. I think that's very positive. But I have also seen in countries um, the debate starts to be, well, we should have very cheap gasoline because we're producing our own oil. Uh, and I, I think that's a mistake when you start to subsidize gasoline prices. It causes economic distortions and inefficient use of energy. Um, and so I think those are the types of sort of political debates that you have um, that I think are risks. The third is, is environment and safety regulations. It's extremely important for a country uh, that develops and is able not just to put on the books, but to really enforce the right environmental and safety regulations. And I think there's more work to be done there in Guyana. And you have to be prepared for um, an, a potential oil spill and have contingency planning. Um, that's something also where I think the US, after the Deepwater Horizon spill, um, made some improvements in environmental regulation and planning, and also uh, partnered a lot with other producers in the Gulf of Mexico, like Mexico, and also even Cuba. Um, and so I think there could be some opportunities for um, co collaboration there and, and sharing experiences. And then finally, um, human capital is going to be a big challenge for Guyana, and um, you're going to need to have very sort of specialized skills to fill positions, everything from um, oil services to the regulator. And um, we looked at the, when Mexico introduced its energy reform, they expected, in anticipation of a boom in the industry, they started to look at what will they do in terms of growing human capital. And one of the things they found is that the vast majority of the jobs require a sort of vocational training, not a kind of academic training. And so you have to have certificates. You have to know that people have the right training and have the right schools. And so that's also something that they could consider. And that in, in the case of Mexico, there was also a lot of cooperation with the US. Um, so I think those are, those are some of the challenges that the country will face down the road. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of just to make a few comments on foreign policy, I think that becoming a, a, an important oil producer in the region uh, could have an, an effect on how, on Guyana's foreign, for, foreign policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis its neighbors in the region. So um, as Andrew mentioned, um, the country was basically kind of an ally of Venezuela, has gone from being an ally to an adversary with Venezuela. Um, now that they're out of the Petrocaribe program, um, they have the border dispute, and I think that they were sort of in Venezuela's political orbit and are now outside of it. And that can have that that can translate into some specific actions. So, you know, they're one of many Caribbean countries have voted with Venezuela in the OAS, and Guyana has um, voted uh, to keep Venezuela on the agenda of the OAS, which is something Venezuela didn't want. And they voted in favor of a resolution to suspend Venezuela from the OAS. So I think it shows how they're kind of um, outside of Venezuela's orbit now. Um, then you have China uh, stepping in. And you know what, what does that mean? Um, China's been in Guyana for, for many years. Um, but now they have a stake through CNUC um, in one of the projects. And just since the, the oil discovery was announced, um, then subsequently Guyana has just joined the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think it's clear that, you know, I don't think there's, that's a coincidence. I think they're of more interest to China now that they have these resources. But I would just end by saying that um, also if we look at the numbers, you know, it's going to be many years before they're, they're really a significant producer. The amount of oil that they're going to be producing initially is, is small and, um, you know, it, It'll put them on par in a few years with Ecuador, but I don't see them taking on a major role in the region. You know, they're not going to be able to be involved in petro diplomacy or start a program like Petro Caribe. I mean, I don't think we should exaggerate, you know, the, the geopolitical role that they will have as a result of this. Yeah, in the end, this is still a small country with a relatively small population. Thank you all. Thanks to our, our panel. I, I think, you know, just looking through my notes, going everything from you know, millions of barrels of, uh, of oil to $100 billion in revenue to 
stable progress to great power competition to um, you know the refugee crisis to resource nationalism environmental and safety regulations the OAS and, and China Belt and Road I think we covered a lot of ground here uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things to talk about uh, we have about 10 minutes left so I want to I'm going to open it up to questions straight away uh, and uh, I, I see first one here, and then I'll go to this this one here. Please wait for the, the microphone to come around because we are recording it, uh, and, uh, and so the people on on Facebook and everywhere else can can hear you and know what's going on. Please identify yourself. Yes, uh, my name is uh, Frank Fletcher. I'm with Daniel Morgan Graduate School here in Washington D.C. My question is: Has anyone done a study of the financial cost and the time frame to develop the infrastructure that Guyana would need to have in order to export what their potential will be. Sonia, I think that's, uh, that's I haven't looked into that in any detail. Lisa, any? I, any? I can say that I know that, they've, gotten, that um, they've already received some loans from China for infrastructure, like airports and roads. Uh, but I don't know the, the cost. I, I, I think actually, the, so the oil companies will be building, uh, building the platforms. I think the, the offtake, I don't know if it, it will even get on land in, in Guyana. I, don't, I, I think it'll, it'll pick it up and, and send, it, uh, send it off to markets directly from the offshore. So the tankers. Yeah. The tankers. Yeah. So, it, so it's, it actually won't be that much onshore infrastructure in terms of exporting facilities. So I think, sir, right there in the middle. Thank you. May I stand? Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. My name is John Chester Innes. I'm the first secretary at the Embassy of Guyana. Welcome. I um, would like to um, sort of apologize for the ambassador's absence. However, he did not receive an invitation to this event. I sent it along. Uh, I, I would just like to make a few points. Sure. I would like to, first of all, Acknowledge your, um, uh, I would like to acknowledge uh, your, your, your views on the um, Venezuelan claim. That's the first thing I'd like to do. Um, however, we do not see it, we do not view it as a border dispute. We view it as a border controversy. Um, <laughs> That's a good Secondly, we have always, Guyana has always taken the um, peaceful approach to the settlement of disputes. And so um, if you look at our actions, um, they have been historically aligned with the rule of law and the um, proponents of um, um, the um, fact that we see an international order as being one that necessitates um, disputes being settled within a particular legal framework. The current administration, since it assumed office in May 2015, we have by and large sought to engage with our international partners in this new sector. Um, you have already highlighted the fact that it is new to us. So what we have begun doing is that we have begun um, focusing on how we can build capacity at home. We recognize that there are challenges, so we're trying as, as best as possible with the aid and assistance of our international partners to be able to overcome those challenges. Um, as you noted, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is um, something that is very important to my president, it's important to the country as a whole because we know about the um, experiences of other countries in relation to the Dutch disease. Um, we do not want to fall into that trap as well. And I believe that we have a very unique opportunity whereby now we could look at the experiences of other countries and try to see how we can be, um, our story could be one of a difference. So, Indeed, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is being established so, so that future generations can benefit from the proceeds of this sector. Um, 
we do not want to, while the sector is receiving a huge amount of buzz back home and also in the international community, we do not want to sacrifice our other industries. So indeed, attention is also being paid to maintaining our other industries, which are by and large agricultural-based and extractive. And um, we do hope that the proceeds out of the uh, energy sector will go towards projects such as infrastructure, um, linking our far-flung communities, and educating our generation so that, um, and this comes back to capacity, so that we Guyanese can own the industry. We can be the ones who are um, helping to, to grow the industry along. And I would finally like to take this opportunity to um, open the arms of the embassy. Um, the ambassador and staff, we are very um, appreciative of the fact that um, Guyana's developmental thrust and our, our other prospects are being given careful consideration. And we would welcome any, um, any um, engagement with partners so that um, we have the best opportunity to learn from those who would have gone ahead of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think that's, thank you for your comments and, and we'll, we'll take you up on that and, and, um, and we look forward to working with you more. Uh, I think I saw a question, ma'am, right there. Hi, my name is Wendy Hestick and I am a housing professional. I wanted to know what research has been done for housing in Guyana. I heard at the end you're saying that most of the operations would be offshore, but immediately Ghana has an acute housing crisis that's getting worse. And I'm just wondering what research you've done in that regard. I am Guyanese. Thank you. I don't have anything specific on that. Um, Sonia, do you have any? No. no. We've, we've focused specifically on, on energy. Uh, I, I, I do think, you know, certainly, uh, as I say throughout the, the, the report, uh, properly managing wealth will give, give uh, the people and the government of Guyana uh, the opportunity to take advantage and, and uh, raise their own standards of living. Uh, I, think, I think that's an important, housing is obviously very important. Uh, let's see, we've got one in the back there and then we'll come up front here. Hi, yes, Mia Kaysman from the Americas Program at CSIS. Um, you touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could expand on how um, the Venezuelan refugee crisis and also the issues with PDVSA um, will play a role in this going forward. Maybe Lisa or Admiral Green? Something. Well, I mean, there are some um, Venezuelan refugees going to Guyana, but it's nowhere near the numbers that we're seeing going to other neighbors. Um, by far, the most are going to Colombia, over a million, and then many to Brazil. Um, I think they're going to, you know, the larger countries where they have, in the case of Colombia, common language, more job opportunities. Uh, but certainly, Guyana is also being affected. There are refugees going there, and probably the numbers will increase across all countries. Um, I don't think, I, I think it's more uh, the humanitarian crisis. I don't know if there's um, a link with, you know, PDVSA specifically, but I think Guyana is affected by the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Anything to add? No, I, I, I think that's spot on. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I mentioned the secondary effects of the migrant or the, the crisis in, in terms of the ability of, of the nations that are suddenly inundated with, with uh, hundreds of thousands and now over four million migrants coming in and dealing with that in addition to the other issues that they're dealing with in an environment of, uh, of short resources uh, creates problems that that even though Guyana may not, may not be dealing with large numbers of refugees, it can affect their, the ability of their neighbors to help out in the event that things get uh, even more difficult. Sir, right here. Thank you. 
thank you for the invitation and enlightening presentation. Uh, my name is Art Restrepo. I am the CEO from Ecotropics. We are um, we have projects in the Guyana's Shield, specifically on the environmental and social safeguards. Um, it's very important when you know the region on the ground. Truth, it's the um, you mentioned about in both of you mentioned about the market uh, on and offs for the future. A Suriname, a neighbor that they listen to each other, they work out together. Uh, Alcoa settled a refinery many years ago for bauxite uh, to produce aluminum, to refine aluminum. Mm -hmm. But now that refinery was built, it was so expensive, and now it was left out of nothing. So, <laughs> so they're gonna, Guyana is gonna ask the same, you know, why I'm going to build a refinery if in the future you say we're gonna leave this on the market based, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so what about I'm gonna have a refinery that's gonna be completely a white elephant? So if we're gonna talk about real security, we, we as the country have to commit more uh, beyond expecting that the market is going to solve the future of these people. Because Guyana, honestly, I mean, it's, it's great people and everything, but there's also good uh, infrastructure in terms of basically to the local city, but when you go in-depth in the, in the rainforest, so when you go to, the, to other places, there's nothing in terms of uh, even electricity right and so there's also a lot of lack of capacity building you know to tackle the challenges of the future uh, oil boom mm -hmm. so it's something that we have to look ahead now yeah because just think about they're gonna start comparison you know yeah. Yeah. In China and Russia, of course, are going to take advantage of those certainly. mistakes. Certainly. And uh, part of the reason for, for holding this event today is to, to raise awareness and to, to begin planning and thinking uh, within the United States and, and within D.C. And, and certainly we're, we're hopeful to, to see the same thing and, and you know, to, to hear uh, from Guyana that, that they're working on the same thing, build the policies and, and awareness now. Uh, sir, in the back. And then uh, I think we're going to have to uh, to close up shop. This will be the last one, but we're, we'll be free to uh, to talk afterwards and and uh, talk some more. Hi, my name is Justin Lock. I'm with the Rocky Mountain Institute. We have been retained by Guyana Power and Light Great. to provide technical assistance to them to go to 100% renewable energy right. and address the challenges there. Mm -hmm. uh, something that wasn't really addressed today, obviously, was. Uh, the also the gas reserves that were were identified, and that some of that gas was possibly earmarked for domestic use for base yeah. load power, um, which also contradicts the green growth strategy or the right. green state strategy right. 100 percent. Um, so I'd like to hear your views a little bit on 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 the on the gas side, right? And both from a potential and export, and is is the how is that contradicting with the government's goal to be 100% renewable energy when there's, there's plans from Exxon to use some of that for baseload domestic power. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's astonishing reading the, the green growth plan that they've put forward to a, by 2025 to, to be 100% renewable is, is amazing and, and quite a goal. I don't know uh, the, the, the plans uh, for, for gas. Uh, Sonia, have you, have you all looked into uh, Gas, it's predominantly oil, as you Yeah, say, but so. there, there is some gas, but currently there is no export route, no pipelines, for instance, mm -hmm. and there will be a huge cost involved in getting those pipelines created if they do go ahead with that. So I think that right now is a barrier to the gas actually being developed mm -hmm. yeah, and coming into production. Yeah, I've, I, that's right. Lisa, do you have, uh, have you heard, you mentioned, I think, a little bit the, the onshore gas uh, as, as, a, as an energy source. Yeah, I mean, there are plans for using the gas for domestic electricity. I mean, you could still, in the long term, have, you know, 100% renewables, only if you have really reliable hydro for baseload power, if, if you're not going to use gas. Um, but I think, um, I mean, I think the, the cut... The country seems to be looking for a balance between taking advantage of this new resources that they, they have, but also continuing to have a green economy 
and you know using green green fuels and also um, it's part of their you know appeal for tourism. So I think um, you know you I think they're looking for a kind of balanced approach. With the UN Red program and and uh, other sort of sustainable development goals, I, I think it is quite interesting to when you read the the Green Growth Initiative. It's it's uh, an astonishing sort of uh, amount of, of conservation and, and sustainability built into it, um, and and we can only hope that it, it uh, pursues and, and moves forward. Um, with that. Uh, please join me in thanking all of our panelists and thanking you all for, for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to talking about this more. Keep an eye on our website, americansecurityproject.org, and thanks for, for coming.